Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much indeed for coming along for the weekly podcast, wherever you are around the world. And as ever, we have got so much to get through in our time together. If it's okay with all of you, I'll reflect a bit about the Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings situation, multi layered in its uh, complexity and significance. Uh, then we'll do some questions. Uh, I'll get through as many as possible. Uh, tons have come in this week, unsurprisingly, with so much going on. And uh, yeah, so there's a lot for us to do uh, together. So get running, rowing or whatever you're doing uh, and let's go. It's very easy to utter the cliche, oh, it's only a soap soap opera, the voters aren't interested, when reflecting on the various dramas whirling around Johnson's number 10. Both of those might well be true. Uh, It is partly a soap opera of egos, clashes of character, which are in themselves fascinating to those who are interested in human drama. And one of the joys of politics is that it is absolutely a human drama. It's about people battling it out for all kinds of reasons, ideas, ego trips, the whole lot. Uh, Politics is about resolving disputes through actions, words, conduct, rather than through force. And there is a soap opera element which I think fascinates us all. It may also be true in the case of Johnson that voters aren't paying any attention to any of it. Certainly there have been times over the last year where things have happened where I assumed the impact on the opinion polls would be quite profound and then a poll comes out and gives the Conservatives a massive lead. Perhaps with the vaccine and Voters, certainly in, in, in England's tendency to be totally indifferent to politics, us lot listening now, are not representative. Maybe they're not following it. Uh, we will get a first indication of what's happening in terms of the impact on public opinion with the uh, various elections taking place next month. But even if those two things apply, voter indifference to what's going on and the soap opera being of itself fascinating but soap operas aren't profound there are also profound issues which will be affecting Johnson and affecting number 10 and indeed his government and the views of conservative MPs for many reasons Uh, Here are some of them, and by the way, this is based on me studying quite a few number 10s in my time. Wrote a book, as some of you will know, about prime ministers in the modern era from Harold Wilson to Boris Johnson. Incidentally, now available in bookshops that are reopening. Very prominently displayed in some Waterstones I noticed the other day. Hurrah! Um, And I'm going to use actually some of those reference points of uh, past prime ministers in a minute. But here's why it becomes quite debilitating as an issue for Johnson, even if when he picks up the papers he finds he's got a 25-point poll lead. The first one is just about scrutiny 
in a way that for any human being, including him with his limited moral compass, will find exasperating and traumatic. Remember with him, we're dealing with a figure who has never really had to face scrutiny. He does things, walks away from the chaos and carries on as if nothing has happened. He's never really had to face consequences. And one of the interesting things about his rise to the top of the Conservative Party in the government was when you look back, the lack of intense scrutiny um, as he made his rise. Political interviews were fairly limited. There weren't deep questions about what drove him as a kind of politicians. And when there were, he brushed them aside with a sort of joke. Uh, now there is scrutiny. And it is interesting, it's taking many different forms. Even some Tory-supporting newspapers are putting the feud between him and Cummings, what he got up to with refurbishing the Downing Street flat, what he is alleged to have said as he recklessly repeated his libertarian instincts at the beginning of this pandemic uh, in the autumn, uh, when he's alleged to have said, uh, you know, let the bodies pile up, I'm not having another lockdown. All this is just something he's not used to. And he will find it draining and painful. And that in itself will have an impact on his view of himself, his um, conduct as a leader. He's all already had, uh, we've already had, endless evidence of a very limited attention span. And with all this going on, all this noise, it becomes harder. Then there is the issue of who you can trust. This applies to all Prime Ministers. They are in many ways more vulnerable than they appear to be. They are often portrayed as these mighty figures. But actually they have very few people who they can trust. Uh, you know, the, this applies to all of them. And Johnson must now wonder who precisely he can trust. To take a specific example, Cummings has said that the person who leaked the information about the government's lockdown plans in the late autumn, a leak motivated by a fear that Johnson would change his mind, as he had done so many times during the pandemic, Johnson said the leaker was the then Michael Gove advisor, Henry Newman. Now, I have no idea whether he was or not. But Johnson must least at wonder whether that is the case. Henry Newman now works in number 10 for Johnson. So what does this Henry Newman, who Johnson now works with, think of him? Johnson must wonder this, given that if he did leak it, and it would have had to have been authorised by his boss, Michael Gove, it was for the deeply insulting reason that they simply didn't trust Johnson not to change his mind within 48 hours. And so they wanted to preempt everything by leaking it and forcing him to go ahead with the plans that they had agreed on. Now, who knows whether that was the sequence? Well, some people do, those who were leaked the information. Um, but Johnson 
will at least wonder whether that was the sequence. He, of course, has blamed Cummings, but Cummings is very precise in that statement he issued on Friday afternoon about culpability in certain respects. And he was selective in the examples he chose, and he was utterly precise and said he had documentation and so on to back it up. Now, that leads a prime minister to become paranoid. Uh, Wilson became paranoid, and others have too at certain points. Uh, when you aren't sure, you can trust those around you. And that too will be destabilising for Johnson. Then there is the issue of judgment. Johnson's first big call, when he knew he had won the leadership contest, was to appoint Cummings. He now obviously has concluded that Cummings is out to get him and has decided for now that one of the things he is doing to get him is to lie about him. Now, maybe that is untrue, but that is by implication what Number 10 is saying about some of Cummings' allegations. So what does that tell you about Johnson? As I've discussed here before, the choice of advisers tells you more about a prime minister than anything he does with a cabinet, because a cabinet really is determined by <clears throat> lots of political constraints, who's available in the Tory parliamentary party. Uh, whether they were Brexit supporters was a big consideration for Johnson. And the, the cabinet doesn't necessarily reflect in all ways the personal judgment of the Prime Minister. The advisers do. The Prime Minister has the space and freedom to choose who he or she wants and he chose Dominic Cummings and gave Dominic Cummings unprecedented power as a special advisor, much more power than, say, Alistair Campbell had under Tony Blair. And he must now think, as he is engaged in this battle with Cummings, what the hell was I doing? Johnson is a very self-absorbed, introspective figure. He performs on a stage, but otherwise is quite introspective, and has never really been a good judge of character. He's fascinated by legendary figures like Churchill and Shakespeare. But when it comes to judging people around him, he has never had uh, perceptive views or a great interest in other people. He had concluded that Cummings was a kind of genius, which on one level he is, but hadn't really thought through the impact of giving this uh, ferocious force in the Brexit referendum, almost omnipotent range of control in number 10. So he, though this will disturb him least, I think, of all the things that's going on, uh, will wonder about his capacity to make pivotal judgment calls. And then there is the sort of coalition of people whirling around these issues 
and raising questions about him. The Daily Mail have put it on their front page quite a few times. Uh, even uh, some of Rupert Murdoch's newspapers have reported it extensively. Uh, the BBC then has permission to report it extensively. They feel uneasily, uneasy about going alone on a theme against uh, a Conservative leadership if the Conservative papers aren't doing it. But the Conservative papers are and therefore the BBC is giving it uh, extensive coverage too. And there is then the sort of broader sort of political coalition. It was very interesting hearing David Gork, a former Conservative cabinet minister, still describes himself as a Conservative, though kicked out of the Parliamentary Party famously when Johnson came in, uh, talking about the integrity vacuum in Johnson and so you have a range of forces now whirling around these issues of integrity and even if as we discussed at the beginning perhaps we're going through a very dangerous phase where some voters particularly in England are so self-absorbed themselves so insular that they just follow none of it and have decided they like him and they're going to carry on voting conservative they love brexit they are proud to be english all this kind of stuff it will still i think be debilitating and conservative mps will take note so will ministers johnson will be wondering what michael gove is up to in all of this he was, after all, the figure who brought uh, Dominic Cummings into government uh, when uh, Michael Gove was education secretary. Um, uh, Michael Gove uh, rightly was arguing for the lockdown uh, rules to be strict in the autumn. Uh, he made the right judgment call. Uh, but what's he up to now? He was apparently at this meeting where Johnson said let the bodies pile up he will have to be asked about it he will inevitably say he can't recall it or perhaps unequivocally deny it who knows um, but these are elements where a governing party becomes destabilized uh, and they raise questions in this case about leadership and whether johnson has the qualities of leadership required at any time actually but especially at a time of so many critical events erupting around us from the pandemic to his form of brexit the consequences of which are being played out largely uh, unreported but are uh, explosive and this will be asked by Tory MPs and the government. If the Tories do well in the elections next May, gain Hartlepool, keep the mayority in the West Midlands and uh, continue to do well in the so-called Red Wall areas, there's no doubt a protective shield will form around Johnson in that MPs will conclude he is just our vote winner. Whatever he does, people carry on voting for him but even that protective shield uh, 
uh, it will certainly protect him from any kind of immediate leadership challenges or speculation about his leadership doesn't really protect him from these other things that I've been talking about the paranoia the uh, fear of what others are getting up to within number 10 and his cabinet the the worry about how he's perceived by key figures in number 10 and in the cabinet the coalition whirling around him over his integrity now i don't think in the end actually sleaze did for the john major government uh, i think people forget how dysfunctional that government had become by the mid-1990s, completely split over Europe and fighting out a, uh, a civil war in public in the studios. And that was the context to the decline of Major. In, and then, of course, Tony Blair soared as a leader of the opposition. Um, and Sleaze was part of it, but not central to it. And it's the same now, but it becomes, as I say, debilitating for a prime minister and deeply disturbing and draining and that will feed in to the politics whatever the voters are up to it always does i think one of the reasons you know people are still mystified to some extent why harold wilson left uh, voluntarily one of the few prime ministers to leave of his own volition in uh, 76 1976 and I just think he was exhausted, partly with dealing with people he didn't trust, the intrigue, he was kind of paranoid but had good cause for the paranoia. Uh, the number 10 was febrile and angry. You know, some of his advisors like Bernard Donoghue and Joe Haynes loathed Marcia Williams who they thought had some kind of hold over him. And there was even a conversation, according to Bernard Donoghue in one of his brilliant memoirs, that uh, Harold Wilson's doctor suggested, uh, presumably for a joke, that he should put a lethal injection uh, into Marcia Williams. That's the kind of mood there. And I think it got to Wilson and he just found it all too exhausting. And the fall of Thatcher can be traced partly between that row over her desire to have an economics advisor, Nigel Lawson furious that her economic advisor was telling her to do things that he disapproved of, the Blair Brown thing, which was often called the Blair Brown soap opera, was actually about uh, policy matters as well and strategic ones and uh, were fairly deep but both sides, looking back, uh, accept that it exhausted them and to some extent paralysed that government. So these things that are talked about as a soap opera aren't. Look at the Theresa May era. You know, uh, here was a figure wholly defined by her two advisers, Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy. And in terms of ideas, uh, clearly defined by Nick Timothy, who has some interesting and innovative thoughts about, I, he's a sort of a thoughtful Tory modernizer, really. And those who claim to be Tory modernizers, like Cameron and Osborne, weren't. I mean, he he had interesting ideas about intervening in markets, the role of the state, and and lots of other things. And and she therefore adopted these ideas. 
but they were loathed by much of the cabinet and Tory MPs and of course were blamed for the election in 2017 and she had to dump them and was in some respects lost after that. So these things are profound. And the more I think about it, even the Downing Street flat, which he now apparently has paid for himself, Johnson, you know, he would have hated paying that money. Uh, here is someone who was earning hundreds of thousands of pounds on the after-dinner speech circuit and his well-paid column for The Telegraph. He is basically still that columnist and um, who has apparently complained about money problems. He would have hated paying for it. But this is what happens when you move to the centre of a political stage, which you always thought would be and should be yours. You get scrutinised. And even though he's had an easier press than he's deserved, the media will turn on these issues. And so I think this is not by any means the end of it, even if, as we said, or I said, sorry to use we now, because I'm thinking of all of you, um, th uh, that uh, perhaps voters aren't paying any attention. They will over time, by the way. Um, that's the other thing. They will over time. But that does mean there has to be a credible, exciting, dynamic alternative. And that brings me to some of your questions. So James Newman has written... Uh, he, he's saying, why is everyone criticising Starmer for having zero policies, pointing out that Cameron didn't have detailed policies until a short time before the 2010 election? Um, and he wonders why people are criticising him in this way. Well, James, I think that is... Some people have said that, and I agree with you, it's absolutely absurd to suggest that Labour, in the middle of a pandemic, years before the next general election, should have uh, spent time unveiling policies. Um, you know, that, that would not have been the answer. But I don't think that many are criticising him necessarily for that. If they are, that's the wrong criticism. I think it's more about, I don't know, well, I, I, there's been, a, I think he's been far too clunky in his, and unsubtle, in his wooing of the Red Wall voters, so-called. And, you know, the sort of the Union Jacks and, you know, oh, it's not British to have a vaccine passport and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's too obviously aimed at one group of voters. And so far, without any evident success of it working, if it was, I'd bow to him. Uh, for his strategic insight. So I think there's there's some stuff on that, there's some stuff on whether he's managing uh, the parliamentary party in the most effective way, um, and, and whether he's chosen wisely in being silent on Brexit. Uh, I don't think he should be. I think there are ways of framing Brexit, which would be fine for him. Um, so I think there are questions, but I completely agree with you. It would have been like something out of Monty Python's Flying Circus, you know, as Boris uh, Johnson holds a press conference after 100,000 dead and Keir Starmer announces his tax and spend policies for 2025. So you're completely right about that. Uh, Richard P Pinchbeck wonders whether now the Super League proposals, what a 
weird eruption that was, uh, the Super League proposals, uh, have been scrapped, the government might use its levelling up agenda to close the financial gap between the biggest clubs in the Premier League and those in the lower leagues. It's a very good suggestion, and it's the kind of populist thing that would appeal to Johnson. I, I wonder, though, whether they will intervene in this way. I mean, there is talk, as many of you will know, that Johnson actually indicated at a private meeting <clears throat> that he was supportive of the Super League and only kind of turned when uh, everyone was saying what a disaster it would be. So whether they have those interventionist instincts in practice, I don't know. It's a very interesting case study because it would be popular and it wouldn't cost them that much. So maybe they will think about it. You, perhaps you should suggest it. It's right up their street. But on the levelling up agenda, they'll need to do a lot more than that. Um, but it would, be, it would be a good one for them to intervene in. I wonder how interventionist they really are. I'm not uh, sure. Um, anyway, let's uh, move on. Uh, so there's another view here from Andrew Kitching. Uh, Labour needs something a bit more forensic than the word sleaze, which people tend to throw at all politicians. And there's some evidence, as Andrew suggests in this case, that you know people are saying, oh, no, they're all at it, they're only in it for themselves. You know, it's a kind of lazy insight, but much, much expressed. Um, he says, I think like Watergate, where the governing party was miles ahead in the polls and treated the opposition with contempt, we should follow the money. The details of the Downing Street refurbishment are in the capable hands of Rachel Reeves, but the explosive allegations in the Sunday Times about uh, Edward Lister's conflicts of interest while in office, he, uh, an advisor of Boris Johnson, need a cool forensic analysis by someone on the opposition backbenches who can analyse figures and marshal a case. Labour also need to turn backbench Tory opinion against Johnson. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you about um, the need for forensic analysis and not just go sleaze, 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 because you're absolutely right. People just say, oh, that's all of them. Uh, so it does need that completely. Um, Tory opinion will turn against Boris Johnson if the Tories are in trouble in the polls. It's as simple as that. While they are way ahead in the polls, um, they will murmur behind the scenes and start to develop deep doubts about Johnson's suitability for leadership. But as I say, if he seems to be an election winner, Johnson is in that context safe. Um, Cam, who, Cam Barath, who uh, listens to the podcast while commuting from Coventry to Birmingham New Street in crowd in trains which are now less deserted. Uh, things that, yeah, I've noticed that. With, I haven't gone on them, but people tell me trains are getting packed again. Um, he says, we've seen issue after issue that would have done for, if not the entire government, at the very least, uh, would have led to ministerial resignations or sackings. Uh, the issues come and then dissipate into the ether or the very tall grass. Um, so what happens? Why? Are those who aren't cowed and carry on, do they not get access? Um, is the BBC frightened to ask difficult questions? Say the BBC are now onto this, uh, but I do think it takes the newspapers to be onto it before they have the confidence to really 
go for these things. Um, but it is there are interesting comparisons. You know, when you think about it, I mean, New Labour were far too neurotic about responding to these things. I mean, they were at the opposite end. I mean, when you think Blair sacked Mandelson twice, and I really can't remember what Mandelson was meant to have done. He, he borrowed some money off Jeffrey Robinson for a house. I mean, in, while he was in opposition. I mean, this, you know, th- so what? Uh, but he was sacked, you know, and then he was sacked again for something which I can't even remember. Um, and anyway, David Blunkett sacked twice, I think. Uh, and so it is a real contrast. But you see, Labour, or certainly New Labour, felt they were imposters disturbing the natural order of things, which is the Conservatives' rule in England, and were neurotic about feeding the media, anything. The contrast with these Etonian prime ministers and their confidence is extraordinary. Uh, So absolutely. Uh, Joanna Lata, dear Steve, uh, listening to the podcast, uh, this was the last one, uh, you discussed the current lack of heavy hitting politicians. And, And I think you mentioned Barbara Castle, I might well have done. Anyway, Joanna says, I went to Hull University and I remember going to listen to the star guest of the Student Union's Labour Party, which was Barbara Castle. This would have been 1995 and so she was already 85 years old. She was formidable, answered each question so well, spoke about the Child Benefit Act and generally made an impression on me that I haven't forgotten. If only there was someone like her now. It's interesting, Joanna. I'm writing a book at the moment on prime ministers we never had. And um, she might feature. I'm not going to reveal anything until it's about to come out. But I I look back and um, I interviewed Barbara Castle when she was 90. So five years after you saw her at the students' event uh, in Hull University. And she was still formidable and hilarious. In she was made me laugh out loud with her mischievous uh, comments. Um, and she, yeah, she is a formidable figure, and there aren't people like her around at the moment. Um, okay, thank you for that, Andy Hall. If Johnson or a possible successor decided to give Sturgeon another referendum on Scottish independence between now and the next election in 2024 and the yes campaign lost do you think the SNP would hold on to many of the Scottish seats at the general election or would they return to other parties we're leaping quite a few hurdles there Andy but if the SNP were to lose a second referendum that would be it as Nicola Sturgeon knows only too well Um, so yeah uh, the stakes are very very high Okay, uh, from Venetia Kane. Um, yeah, she she points out that, oh yeah, last week I was talking about the Cameron scandal, which was partly about the fact that England tends to elect long-serving governments, mainly conservative ones, um, in contrast to the 60s and 70s when they swapped hands quite often. The BBC even had this ancient old swingometer to show the swing between parties at each election. It was a sort of thing made out of wood, creeped along the screen. Um, I've only seen this, incidentally, on YouTube. I was not around for the swingometer era, for much of it anyway. Um, anyway, she says, it's interesting that you observe the governments used to seesaw as you grew up. 
and that you cut your political teeth on the Heath Wilson period. Yeah, I did. I was a teenager, or yeah, around then. As one who was five when the Tories came to power in 1951 and 18 when Labour did so in 64, I grew up believing the Conservatives were the hereditary party of government. I was already working in the Treasury, having declined to go to university, when Wilson and co came in and it felt like a great shock. Yeah, well, it's interesting that, Venetia. And, it, and that explains, by the way, why Labour do feel imposters on the occasional moment when they win an election, uh, because of this sense that, certainly at Westminster, uh, it's Conservative governments. I mean, I voted for the first time in 1979, and um, there were then uh, 18 years of Conservative government. So, uh, topping your experience, uh, Venetia, uh, oh, she notes, yeah, what a wide range of followers you have. Students scribbling essays at midnight. Yeah, we had a few questions from students last week, scribbling away late into the night. And then her, Venetia, with her knitting. Well, that's cool. Knitting's cool, uh, sort of. Thank you, uh, Venetia. Um, Ian Davidge wonders whether two new factors are going to come into play soon. Uh, the end of the Brexit effect, uh, yeah, interesting. Although you, you, I think Brexit as a potent issue is fading for now, but as we've discussed many times on this podcast, not the consequences necessarily. And then also post-pandemic, uh, the emergence of a new political agenda um, uh, of of kind of all kinds of uh, different factors. Um, he says we're starting to live with the reality of certain things but I'm not sure how much of this has registered with the electorate yet um, he's talking about political concerns in the new world we find ourselves in rather than being mired in the morass of just getting to Brexit he's talking about fishing farming food production it's probably too early to really assess its economic and political impact plus the effects of Brexit so a whole new world emerging yeah I think so. I think there is a new world emerging. Um, and uh, post-pandemic, politics will feel different if we are going to get through it. I mean, there's still, let's be honest, some people still saying there's going to be another wave and stuff. So we don't know for sure, do we? But um, yeah, let's, let's hope we're through that and there is another agenda. Uh, and I know you've written in much more detail about what that agenda should be. If you don't mind, I'm just going to raise that as a point now uh, because we're running out of time there are so many so many questions uh, let's go briefly to um, uh, Nick Jones who's written about the European Super League uh, he says my other passion is sport and I listened oh he listened to the podcast last week just after the Super League collapsed what a great combination Nick. Uh, most pundits seem to agree that the collapse of the Super League came about directly from the near unanimous reaction that the plans created amongst anyone who cared for the game. As one person put it, the plans united everyone, even those who had a tribal animosity, Liverpool and Man U. And then I heard you, me, me in the podcast, postulating that England had become more, oh, we're back to the one party state. Yeah, the Conservatives now have ruled for four terms. Many think they're going to win a fifth term. I was doing it in the context of the Cameron stuff so that he could text his mates because they're still, they're still in power, even though he's a former prime minister. And that wouldn't have been the case if Ed Balls, say, had been chancellor after 2015. Ed Balls would not have responded to Cameron's text. 
Anyway, he says, I think from your previous comments that you would believe this to be a non-starter, but I wonder what would happen if uh, for one election only, all the non-Tory parties agreed to cooperate with a view to ensuring that only the strongest opponents stood, e.g. Greens in Brighton, Lib Dems in Kingston, Labour in Crawley, and part of their joint platform would be a commitment to introduce PR, which would then enable them to fight the following election on their own tribal manifesto. Um, he says football has been saved this might be the way of saving the country now I know there are a few more questions about this a sort of coming together of um, uh, different parties and we've had this uh, as a theme before um, yeah I I still don't see how it happens because you would have to have Starmer maybe he will get to this point basically admitting Labour can't win on its own and that admission can feed on itself and uh, create a perception of failure. Uh, so how you move from that to an alliance with that alliance looking formidable rather than desperate, I'm not sure. But I don't rule it out happening because it is the constant pattern. Uh, uh, one party on the right, the Conservatives, and all this, all this fracturing on the sort of non-conservative side of politics and it is the reason or it's one reason by no means the only one why the conservatives keep on winning um uh, dominica jewel from france writes about all the kind of stuff we've been talking about the scandals the dyson the public funding of uh, the jennifer arcoon and all the rest of it um is it credible that the Dyson thing was deliberately leaked? If so, to what advantage? Yeah, well, I, I thought at first number 10 might have leaked the Dyson things, but clearly from Johnson's reactions, uh, he was so furious. Uh, he blamed uh, Cummings, so and Cummings denies it. So who knows, frankly, what's going on? But Dominica, keep keep an eye on this. This is, this is not ending soon. Um, okay, uh, finally from Darren Jones, as a history and politics teacher. Oh, thank you. He loves the podcast. Thank you very much. He says, I wonder who do you think might have been a successful leader for Labour in 2015 and 2017? That's uh, Darren Jones. Uh, well, um, God knows, frankly, uh, Darren. Uh, the sort of leadership crisis in the Labour Party at the time was that there were no real obvious leaders who could uh, address the challenge posed by Cameron which was not that uh, not that difficult actually and frame a coherent alternative which was both radical and commanded widespread support uh, and who could be a performer in the media and keep a Labour Party together on issues such as Brexit on which it was deeply divided. Uh, it, it would have involved titanic qualities and i can't i can't couldn't see them then i can't see them now um but uh, perhaps you could email me darren with your ideas as to who could have done better in 2015 and 2017 i know some of you think in 2015 it should have been david Miliband, but i think if that had happened and david had been leader from 2010 people will have concluded they had elected the wrong brother uh, so there we go we will never know that's the joy of hypotheticals we can speculate away and we will never know whether we were right or wrong
Anyway, look, thank you so much. I know there are so many more questions. I'm sorry if I didn't get to them all. Um, but I think those of you who've done your 5K will have got back now and all the rest of it. So I think uh, let's leave it there. If you want to contact me, I read all the questions. I try and reply to as many of them as possible if I don't read them out in, on the podcast. It's steverick14 at iCloud.com. steverick14 at iCloud.com. And the live show, the historic final live show streamed from a room in my house is on i can't remember the date but it's on the king's place website uh with incidentally details of the first show live from king's place which will also be streamed i'll tell you about that as well but all those kind of things get onto that website and have a look if you put in steve richards rock and roll politics it's all there and um there'll be more details of other live shows as well from me on this podcast anyway it's going to be quite a week. So get on with walking, running, drinking whiskey, whatever you're doing during the podcast, and then follow the drama and more from us all next week. Thanks so much for listening. Oh, yeah. If you could leave a review, apparently it gets to more people, the podcast, uh, on iTunes or wherever you listen. That would be great. And do subscribe because that means you get it automatically. And that makes total sense, doesn't it? In a, in a world where there isn't much sense around. Thank you very much. See you next week. Bye.